0: It was almost like a song. Piled into the back of the brown church van, we teenagers were singing at the top of our lungs. It was almost like a song. We swayed as we sang. We slid, no, we body slammed from side to side in the back of the brown church van, thinking that if we slammed hard enough to one side, we might actually skid the tires and tip it over we sang as loud as we could once in every life. Someone comes along and you came to me and it was almost like a song. I probably learned more about God in the back of that church van than I ever learned inside the sanctuary. Now don't get me wrong, I was in church every Sunday singing in the choir, playing in the handbell choir, But in the church van, when we drove to the bowling alley or the pizza hut or the raft trip, I learned to sing the spontaneous praise of a bunch of silly teenagers. It was almost like a song. A couple of months ago, I asked all of you to submit the names of your favorite songs. You turned in songs to me like What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra's My Way. Carry On My Wayward Son by the rock band Kansas, and Jimmy Buffett's I Don't Know. One woman who's been confined to a nursing home for a number of years I hadn't seen her since we shared in a funeral together years ago called me just to tell me that her favorite song was There's No Business Like Show Business. I loved hearing your songs. I suspect that many of you have a story to go with your song. The song is not just musically appealing. It reminds you of something that happened in your childhood or your teenage years, a coming-of-age song or your first love. Maybe there was a difficult crisis where the melody sustained you like the Holy Spirit. Today's scripture lesson invites us to praise God with a song, with every instrument we can possibly find, and we are not told why. Why do we praise? Simply, we are summoned here in Psalm 150 to sing God's praise. When the book of Psalms were first assembled, the entire Bible was comprised of only five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They sometimes called it back then the Pentateuch for the five books. And so when they gathered up all these songs and made them into the book of Psalms, they also divided them into five parts. For all we needed to learn, our instructions in life were in those first five books. And everything we had ever felt or might feel was comprised in the book of Psalms our deepest agony, our greatest joy, there was a song there for it, for every circumstance in life. However, instead of calling it lament and praise, they simply called the whole collection Te Halim, praise, because they had discovered that even in the most awful moments, God was there, enabling them somehow to keep singing. Psalm 1, we used it the first week of this series, is a psalm of praise. And Psalm 150, the last one in the book, is a psalm of praise. It's as if the whole book is bookended with praise. Sometimes we shy away from the psalms. We're not sure if we want to share our laments with God to air out our dirty laundry, our disappointment with God, our anger. Does God even care? And sometimes we don't feel like praising. I mean, sometimes praise feels sort of trite or hollow, empty. I had a classmate in seminary who had worked for the PTL Club before coming to seminary, Praise the Lord Club. He was a part of that televangelist show where those who led the Praise the Lord eventually ended up in prison. But before that, even before there were legal troubles, I was suspect of this forced praise. It seemed kind of fake, and my friend Eric was in charge of coming out before the congregation, before the service began, to kind of coach them about when to raise their arms, when to sing, when to clap. He was kind of a praise instructor. In his classic book, Wishful Thinking, Frederick Beekner describes how sometimes we just get confused about praise. We tend to associate praise with giving compliments. You know, like you praise a new puppy when she makes it to the backyard in time to do her business. Or you praise a talented soloist when he sings an amazing song. But if the soloist hits a wrong note, or the puppy leaks on the carpet before you make it to the back door, you withhold your praise. But Beekner says that the kind of praise that resounds in the book of Psalms cannot be held back. It's like a volcanic eruption. You can't stop it if you, cry, if you try, for even the creation cries out in praise. The mountain stream babbles, the baby coos, the fire crackles, the snow swirls stars shine the ocean laps at the shore praise doesn't always involve words because so much of creation is wordless praise is not just a planned phrase that we learn at church and practice but rather praise is when we are living life at its truest fullest most real Beekner concludes that we learn to praise not by paying compliments, but by paying attention. I suspect that was what was happening when we named our favorite songs. We were paying attention to something that happened in life that awakened us to our truest self, and we experienced a holy wonder that we are so mysteriously connected one to another and to the creator of the universe. So is there such a thing as getting better at praise? Is there any way that you and I can buff up our muscles, our praise muscles? Sometimes praise just feels awkward. But I warmed up to the idea of getting better at praise when I read what Rolf jacobson said about the psalms of praise he says that we don't praise god for god's personal sake but for god's mission in praise he said we do two things we give ourselves fully to god and we give god away to our neighbor i like that better it feels better to me than simply waving my hands in the air to say praise the lord because frankly i don't like thinking that god needs me to affirm god's ego but i love imagining that when we are the truest that god created us to be that some kind of joy and hope and peace erupts spontaneously from us that shapes the very lives around us could our spontaneous praise actually make a difference. Several years ago, there was a story in the Christian century. It was a man reflecting upon his childhood church in a small town. He remembered that the church was a simple building constructed of that paprika red brick. On the top of the church was a steeple. Next door was an almost identical building built with red paprika brick. The only difference is that on top of it was a tower with a siren. He said that he loved going to church as a child because he just longed and hoped for that moment when the siren went off in that fire station next to him, right in the middle of the sermon, or in the middle of the prayers, and a dozen or so members of the volunteer fire department slammed their hymnal shut, dropped their bulletins, and ran out to rescue those who needed help. He said, I wanted to run with them to put on the disciples' uniform of hip boots and heavy coat and helmet. The running out of church at full tilt to rescue a hurting life for him, it was almost like a song. He heard that God was calling them to mend a broken world. Even if the fire station siren didn't go off, he was listening for the cry. The story reminds me that praise and practice, well, they're really one and the same thing. We do not come to worship to escape the world, but to pay attention to God's presence in it. We do not praise God with voices alone, but with our lives. We praise to proclaim the truth that none of us finds ourselves ever alone in this world. We are connected to one another the way that James Taylor sings about it. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are gonna get much better if you only will. Praise remains empty if we leave it here in this space on Sunday morning. But prayer changes us and changes the world when we put our hands and feet to the music. Many of you have been to Crystal Bridges. Raise your hand if you've been to Crystal Bridges in Arkansas. So Dave and I went there last weekend in Bentonville, Arkansas, to look at the beautiful art inside the museum, but also at the beautiful sculptures that dot the landscape around the museum. There's a beautiful natural forest and some beautifully landscaped flower gardens. And we were walking around looking at each sculpture. One is so large you cannot miss it. It's a gigantic 50-foot geodesic dome that you can actually walk around inside of. Buckminster Fuller designed the dome in the early 1960s as a part of a study to figure out how to build more economical and energy-efficient housing, and then they built his design in the early 80s in Los Angeles, and they recently brought it there to Arkansas that others might enjoy this dome. It's called the Fly's Eye Dome because you can look outside of the dome through these circular openings. And so when you're standing inside of it, you feel completely enveloped and at the same time, you can't help but look up and look out at the beautiful sky and forest and flowers. I loved that feeling of being inside the dome and looking out knowing that I was inside and outside at the same time and I suspect that you and I Find worship to be what worship was meant to be when we come inside of the sanctuary, inside here, and know that we are being called to look outside at the world as well. The first line of Psalm 150 says, Praise God in the sanctuary and praise God in the dome, in the firmament, in the whole world. Our praise is not to stay in this place. It is to carry us forward. Here we catch a glimpse of how our lives might become like a song. Here we peer back at our desk at the office, the swing set on the playground, the kitchen table, and we see how it is enveloped by God's dome. The world is reframed by an eye that sees goodness and hope in the midst of this very, very troubled world. I think sometimes, when I'm low, about those African-American slaves in the mid-1850s who seemed to have absolutely nothing to sing about. They had been ripped from their children, sold into slavery, husbands separated from wives, But when the Underground Railroad was developed to help them move north into safety and be reunited with their families, they began singing a song that they had learned in church. It was a song about God coming to rescue the prophet Elijah, whisking him off to heaven in a chariot. When a slave was sleeping at night and heard, swing low, Sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low. Sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. They knew that a stranger, a man or a woman, was there in the night, risking life to come and carry them to safety. They sang that ancient spiritual because they knew that the God of the universe was still longing to carry them home. How will our lives become almost like a song?